0: Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for our time tonight. Um, as we do every week, we thank you for the opportunity to take a an hour or so midweek and just stop and uh, go to the Word as a people. And uh, Especially tonight, Lord, we uh, thank you for the way that um, we are encouraged by the Word and that we're really challenged. I think if we look at the text closely tonight, we'll all walk away um, challenged in some particular areas in regard to The work that you call us to as the church. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would guide our time according to your will and that you'd be glorified in it. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Nehemiah tonight and if you're going to write one word to kind of capture what the theme is, the theme is rebuilding. So rebuilding would be what you'd write in your notes if you're trying to get one, usually we try to have one word. Um, for each book that, that kind of lets us stay on track and be able to know what we're looking at. And so um, last week we looked at Ezra, and Nehemiah is really the second part of that book. Um, originally they were one book, um, but as they were canonizing scripture, given the um, the main characters of, of each section, they decided to make it Ezra and Nehemiah. And so um, what we're seeing in, in Nehemiah is a, is a pretty significant continuation of what we looked at in Ezra last week. So I'll open with a very broad question. What did we learn in Ezra last week? Yeah, that God moves the hearts of kings. What else? I feel like I didn't give y'all much time to kind of get into this, you know, normally there's a longer intro, we can kind of acclimate from the work day, but I just went right into it and said what we learned last week, so usually I'll know that when I see the tops of heads, everyone's studying very diligently like this. Yes, they're being let out of their exile, they being Israel, being let out of the exile, who were they exiled under? Who? Cyrus, yeah, they, they were in Babylonian exile, which turned into a Persian exile, because um, Babylon kind of fell in on itself, and Persia swallowed it up, and now um, they were let go uh, to, their, to their home to do what? To rebuild the temple, exactly. Why did the temple need to be rebuilt? Obviously, it was broken down. I'm looking for more than that. <laughs> 586 B.C., what happened? Yeah. The Babylonians came in and destroyed it, and, and they took a, the large majority of the Israelites with them into captivity. Uh, what caused the Israelites to have the freedom to go and rebuild the temple? What we just said about, we know that the Lord can move the hearts of kings, so so what happened specifically? Which king did the Lord move, Cyrus, and what did he say to the people? God told me to build him a house, so you're going to go do that, and I'm going to give you some goods to go do that. Pretty remarkable uh, occurrence there. Uh, What did Ezra find when he uh, returned to Jerusalem? Because remember, it was like chapter 7 when Ezra came in, so they went, they started this work, he goes to see what's going on, what did he find? Some were discouraged. Yeah, there was, they were kind of threatening the work that was going on there. What else? Intermarriage. Yeah, and biblically, what are we talking about there? Exactly. One marriage and either two gods or multiple gods. We're not just talking about a race issue at all here. We're talking about when two people get married that serve different gods. Because the, the warning that came way back before was if you uh, intermarry with them, they're going to lead your people. Your, it, it says particularly that they'll lead the men, the young men who marry their young women, that will lead them away to worship their gods. And that's idolatry. And so obviously idolatry is a bad thing. And so when he sees this intermarriage, um, how does he respond? What'd you say? Yeah, yeah, he fasts and he prays. He, he, he mourns because of what's going on. And uh what role did the word of God play in the movement of the Israelites through the book of Ezra? Yeah. Yeah, it said that Ezra was was very skilled and knowledgeable in the word, and then when he went, that's what he spoke to them. And when he spoke it, what what happened? What are some of the different things that occurred in the people once the word was spoken? They repented. That's huge. What else? Yes, they they did away with all the intermarriage. And did that happen overnight? No, it took months, in fact. And that's a reminder for us that repentance, I mean, making things right, sometimes it doesn't happen overnight. And it may be very tedious, but it's very worthwhile. And the way that they did it was was good. What happened to the people who were discouraged? They were encouraged, just like y'all will be tonight as we engage the Word together. All right, fantastic. Um, Yeah, they were encouraged. Those who were lacking in motivation were motivated. Those who were immobile were mobilized. Those who were um, in sin were convicted. Um, that brought about confession because that's what the word tells you to do when you sin, and then that brought about repentance, which is what the word tells you what to do. All central on the word. The word is the thing that was spoken to cause all those things to happen, and it was a pretty major role throughout throughout Ezra. And in fact, Ezra really wouldn't have much to show for in the entire book if not for his ability to know the word and then to teach it. And and, and also, what was the third thing? Know it, teach it. But what what did, what are you supposed to do before you teach it? What? Yeah, live it, do it. Yeah, exactly. So you got to know it, you got to walk according to it yourself, and then you got to teach it. Those are all three things that we saw in the life of Ezra that showed us that he was a good leader, and that he was leading people well through that time. So this week, the story of rebuilding the temple uh, continues in the book of Nehemiah. Tonight, as we watch the people of God resettle the land and rebuild Jerusalem's walls, particularly, uh, we're going to consider this question. What kind of leadership does the Bible rep, uh, present as exemplary? What, what is godly leadership? And what does godly leadership do when people are leading in a godly manner? How do you lead in a godly manner? What cues can we take from the leadership that God put in place here? And what did he intend to communicate? So look at chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 2 through 4 at the beginning of Nehemiah. I'll just start in verse 1. No point in skipping the first verse. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, Hananiah, Not Hananiah, those are very different people. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So what's the first thing that a good leader does that we see here? If we're looking at Nehemiah as a good leader tonight and how that plays into God's people doing what God's people are called to do, what does he do here that is right? Right? Puts himself before God, and he prays. He, he fasts. He goes to the Lord because he knows that if he's going to do what needs to be done, or if, the, if something's going to happen that is remarkable and good with God's people, that it's certainly going to take God to do that. You're not going to just get 75% of the way through and then say, okay, now God, now you can do your stuff. From the get-go, he prays. He goes to the Lord, and he puts himself before the Lord uh, to, to be used as the Lord sees fit. And why do you think that the city walls were such a big deal? it's likely that this isn't the first time that most people sitting in here have looked at Nehemiah. And so, like, sometimes there's symbolism and there's details that you look at, and I'll ask the question, and, I'm like, I remember it being asked to me as a 10-year-old, and I don't want it to be, I don't want it to just be, you know, Sunday school answery about this. That's a word. It, it works. So, so why are the walls significant? They provide protection, okay, from what? The enemy, okay, and what form does the enemy take for them right here? The enemy takes a form in the book of Nehemiah. what, What would one of those be? You see how I reworded that? Just makes it brings life to the question. <laughs> are people okay with them building the wall? Are people okay with them building the temple? Do they get there and say, "Hello people who inhabit this land. We are ethnic Israelites and we actually have rights to this land that go far back." Would you mind stepping to the side? And they all say, okay, no, that doesn't happen. It's immediate opposition when they get there. And as they rebuild the temple, that happens, but they do the work and they persevere. And what's gonna ha- what we're going to see here in Nehemiah is that there is opposition. And obviously, if you need city walls, there's going to be opposition that comes in the form of those who either are either against your culture or who want to hurt your people or an unhealthy influence that comes from the outside. So we're going to talk about maybe what our city wall looks like in a few minutes because we want to make sure it's clear that... There's a reason we don't have a big wall around our church building. So, uh, to understand that a little bit more, turn to Proverbs 25:28. Proverbs 25:28. So, in reading this verse, our goal is to better understand the necessity of a city wall, okay? So in Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight, it says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I'm gonna read it again. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What is the wall being compared to? Self-control. Okay, this is good. The wall is being compared to self-control. What happens when one does not have self-control? They self-destruct. How? What happens? What's that process look like? You fall to temptation? What else? What are some other things that happen when someone doesn't have self-control? You can drive others away. What influences you when you don't have self-control? Everything. Sure. Which way is the wind blowing? What is it? I mean, there's so many ways to fall into temptation. And so self-control, when it's not there, you're just sort of exposed to those things. Now, where does self-control come from? Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And so it's, you could call it spirit control. There's lots of books written about that where people get real upset about um, the way words are used. But when one doesn't have self-control, the obvious thing that happens is that they're, they're really swayed by, um, we'll call it, outside influence. So what does this reveal about the importance of the city wall? This verse about self-control being compared to city, what does it reveal about the importance of a city wall? Imperative? Like that, yeah, Preservation? People. Okay. Yeah. Yes, yes. A nation that's singular in the direction of worshiping the one true God. Why do you preserve anything? It has value, okay? Um, okay, yeah, that, that's good. It has value. We, we, preser- we don't preserve things that we don't want around, like, like a smelly trash can with dirty diapers. We don't preserve such things. Uh, we want them gone. But like um, uh, good food, we want to preserve that preservatives or something, you know, you're making the connection there, it makes it last longer. Awesome. We're all on the same page. So preserving things. So what I want us to see is it's important not to be open to all passing temptation and to all outside influence. That's what the city wall does. It keeps it from being open to all outside influence, whether it's temptation to follow another God or whether it's the onslaught of an enemy. The city wall is very important to, as you said, preserve a people. The people need to be preserved because they're distinct. That's what we're moving towards here. Distinction is what we're looking at. Um, uh, our goal um, is not to strengthen our armies and keep our enemies out. That's not. What are we called to do with our enemies as Christians? Love them, pray for them, do good to them. We can't do that if we just put walls up our, around our life. So when we're talking about this wall, I want to make sure it's real clear that what we're talking about is we are called to be a people who are distinct, not who just shut out the bad people, okay? So we're ta- looking at self-control. I'm trying to kind of weave this together a little bit. The, the example that's given to us in the scripture, God breathed it out. He said, I want y'all to think about a wall the way you think about self-control. There's distinction. You think about holiness. We're called to be a holy people. And so this wall is very important. At the end of chapter two, Nehemiah, you go ahead and turn back to Nehemiah. We'll come back to this wall thing a little bit more. At the end of chapter two, Nehemiah has inspected the walls. So um, inspecting the walls, how would that play out in the life of a Christian today? There's a lot of really practical obvious. I mean, just kind of, you start, you read a verse, you pull something out of it. How do we, uh, what what would inspecting the wall look like for us today? Accountability, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Predetermined boundaries. You know, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's friendships. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your schedule. Inspecting the wall, like for us today, would would look like taking a look at that. But I love that he goes and takes a look at it. He doesn't just say, hey, bring me someone who's lived with around this dilapidated wall for a while. He goes and looks at it. It's like... Um, uh, Paul Tripp has that quote that our view of ourselves is as accurate as a carnival mirror, and we need God's people to hold up the mirror of the Word so that we can see ourselves accurately. Um, that's what we're talking about here. The inspection of the wall isn't just something that can happen, not like I, I see things right. Um, it's looking at where's are some holes that I have in my life. Like a question you might write in your notes is, what are some areas where I'm allowing way too much influence from the outside? Or allowing way too much sway from the outside. Or allowing way too much of an unguarded onslaught from the outside. Where maybe I'm not showing self-control. What are some areas where the fruit of the Spirit is not present and bearing fruit because of my disobedience? That would be kind of the way we inspect the wall today. So, let's continue looking at this. Nehemiah inspects the walls. And look at verses 18 through 20 in chapter 2. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, "Let us rise up and build." So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, uh, the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, "What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" Then I replied to them, "The God of Heaven will make us prosper." And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So what we find here and throughout chapter 3 is everybody does the work and no one's left out of it. He he encourages them. He says, this is what the Lord has done. This is what the Lord's called us to. And then they all say in response to what God has, has shared, they say, let us rise up and build. And then chapter 3, you, look, you start at the very beginning. Then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the sheep gate. Look at the next paragraph. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. Six, Joeda the son of Peshirah, built the gate of Yishinanah. And then you get to you get goldsmiths doing their stuff. You see the broad wall being worked on by this group of people. Uh, you skip down to verse thirteen. Hannah and, the, and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits. You see that repeated throughout the, the people doing these things. He rebuilt, set its doors, its bars. In verse fourteen of the dung gate, and you go through the pool of Shelah. The king's garden is rebuilt. You see everybody working on different things to get this thing done that the Lord's called him to get done. And it goes through to the very end. you got the horse gate, and at the very end, the sheep gate, the goldsmiths, the merchants repaired, the upper chamber of the corner, all of this detail and this work that's going on. Why? Because Nehemiah showed up. He inspected what needed to be done, what he had been allowed to do by the hand of the Lord. He told them about the goodness of his God, and they said, let us get to work. Let's do this. And then the key there is that everybody gets to work. Everybody. This is a unified effort for them to move forward and do what the Lord has called them to. So... No one's left out of the work. What would happen if someone didn't do their part of the work? What? There's a, there's a weak spot in the wall, and we've already defined the importance of the wall. So what happens if there's a weak spot in the wall? The enemy gets through. You're susceptible to the outside influence that you're trying to keep outside. So if someone doesn't do their job and there's a job to be done, then um, things don't go, there's, there's a hole, there's, there's opportunity for flesh, there's opportunity for outside um, opposition and outside influence to um, come in and keep the people of God from being the people of God, from being distinct. That's what's going on here. So um, this actually seems like a good time to let you know of some opportunities that we have in the body uh, for y'all to help. Do you see that? See how that happened? If everyone's not doing the work that we're called to do, there's a hole in the wall. Let me share with you some opportunities that we have here at Crosspoint for the people of God to do. There's actually one particular one that I want to share with y'all. I'm not just trying to be manipulative, although what I just did was extremely manipulative. So um, don't feel guilty. Um, Make sure the Spirit's calling you to do this. Um, uh, Our fifth and sixth graders have been taught by Ben on Wednesday nights for a while, and there's an opportunity there where we've prayed about it, we've looked at it, and we really feel like um, it's time for Ben to step away from that and be able to focus on a handful of other things. And so there's an opportunity there Um, if you're interested in teaching our kids. Our our three-year-olds through fourth graders have the same curriculum that they go through with the Gospel Project each week. But with our fifth and sixth graders, we wanted there to be a transitional time before they get to seventh grade for them to start engaging the same things that we're engaging in here as adults um, rather than just jumping straight from what even the three-year-olds would be doing up into you know seventh grade and doing you know the studies they're doing. So uh, we see that as a significant age where it's a time of transition and we want to help them grow to be adults. We're not just trying to help them grow up to continue to be kids or youth. We want them to grow into adulthood. And so we're engaging the word as such. So they're actually each week doing the same studies that we're doing. And generally, Ben and I will share notes before we go and teach on Wednesday night and so it's looking like it's time for him to step f- away from that and, and potentially, hopefully, focus on some other things um, that we're feeling called to. And so there's an opportunity for teaching there. And so what we want you all to know is this. Pray about it. See if the Lord's calling you to potentially do that because there's a really great opportunity there uh, for you to be a part of a, a big work that's going on. As well, we don't want you to feel like you know, you're taking some big burden on by yourself um, this could be an apprentice kind of thing where someone sits in with Ben for a little while and kind of sees how it goes and learns what that approach is with the 5th and 6th graders. Um, we've also considered that it could be a team teaching thing. If three or four people come up and say, hey, I'm interested in that, I'm, I'm going to put a team together, with three or four people, to share that that teaching opportunity. Kind of like Wednesday nights are shared. I, I do a lot of it, but I don't do all of it. It's like the preaching. Ben does a lot of it, but he doesn't do all of it. And so um, it's a really sweet opportunity. That group of kids, I mean... There's it's some of the things, I go in and look at the board every week because Ben chicken scratches the board and you can sometimes make some of it out. But you can just see what they engage and you can see some of the answers that the kids gave. And then I hear Ben recounting it every week after Wednesday about things that those kids are engaging and how he was encouraged and and, uh, surprised at some of the insight. And so um, it's a sweet opportunity. And so as we're sitting here looking at, everyone does a part of the work. It seems a fitting time to share that because it's a, it's a need. It's, it's in front of us right now, and it's just a sweet opportunity um, to continue to show these young kids who are growing up how to remain distinct as God's people and how to walk in the light of what he tells us to walk in. So um, if y'all, if anyone's interested in that, talk to me afterwards or grab Ben or just make it known, send an email, whatever, because it's a, it's a cool opportunity there to, uh, to do some teaching. So in Nehemiah what we see as we go through the book, we see the preparation for the work, we see the beginning of the work, we see opposition to the work, we see the resuming of the work. Um, it's at one point next week we'll see the finishing of the work. So um, what is it sufficient to say uh, that the book of Nehemiah is about? Work. Yeah, it's, it's a repeated theme. The The book, what they're doing here, they're working, they're doing what the Lord is. They're not just hearing it, they're doing it. They're being doers of the word, not hearers only. And so, but they had to hear it to be able to do it. So, it's sufficient to say that the book of Nehemiah is about work. And this is another point about godly leadership. We already saw that a godly leader prays. The next thing that a godly leader does is he works. Um, He acts. He he, he acts upon what he's seen, what he's heard. and, And he helps others to do the same. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, and he's an Israelite. And just turn back to 2. I, I want us to kind of see how this begins. Um, what, why was he sent to Judah? Why was he sent to, to rebuild this? And in 2, 1 through 4, we see what it looks like. In the month of uh, Nisan, or Nisan, whatever, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, uh, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. He was a cupbearer to the king. Uh, Now, I had not uh, been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, "Uh, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? Uh, This is nothing but the sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of the heaven, the God of heaven, and I said to the king, now before we go any further, why is he afraid in the presence of the king? You don't want to anger the king. I mean, what's his role? Cupbearer. You're bringing the king his wine. And if, if, I mean, you could imagine if he walks in, all upset and kind of you know ruins the atmosphere, how that could anger the king as well, the king has a lot of power and he respects that, and so he doesn't want to cause unnecessary stress for the king he doesn't want to bring eyes upon himself when it's not necessary, but he he cannot help that his heart is sad and the king is a, a thankfully a man who who has some insight and some wisdom and 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 is able to see hey. That has to be sadness of your heart because you're not sick. What's going on there? So we see that he's afraid, yet he has an opportunity here. So uh, he has an opportunity with the king, and I want you to look at what he does with it. Look at verses 5 through 8. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, Queen sitting beside him. It's a funny addition there. In case you were wondering, she was right there. Um, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates. Of the fortress, of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy, and the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Now that's a theme that we got last week in Ezra, that the good hand of the Lord was upon him, and here we see the good hand of the Lord upon Nehemiah. Now this whole this whole encounter here is absolutely remarkable. Here's why: Um, uh, he prays, and he makes a plan, and he acts. Do you see? Like when he went in, what? What was his condition when he went into the king? He was what? He was sad. Was he going in, like, I want you to picture the difference between someone who is sad and doing their work and someone who's going in to make a proposal. Like, if someone in business is going in to make a proposal, what's that like? What do they have to be? All popped up, and what else? Prepared. you got to have your stuff in order. you got to know what's going on. He's not making a proposal. He's not going into the king, throwing the door open a little harder to show that he means business. He's not going in with his voice right saying, You know what? I'm going to rebuild this thing. If it's the last thing I do, even though I'm your cupbearer, I'm, I'm leaving. He doesn't go in there and do that. He's sad. So, how does he go from being sad, noticeably, to coming up with this plan? He prayed. It wasn't his plan. Whose plan was it? God's. And he prayed to who? And how fast did all that happen? It happened pretty darn quickly. Yes. Yeah. We have to know that our God is that trustworthy. And we have to know that he will call us to things like that sometimes. Here. Here. He's sad. Then the king said, what are you requesting? He hadn't requested anything. He had just shared the concern that he had. The king afforded him a lot of leverage and said, well, what do you want? What are you requesting? When someone of that power says, what are you requesting? Whether, if you didn't have a request beforehand, you make up a request right there. You get to something because that person with power is going to enable you to go do something. And so he says, dear Lord, what am I going to do? I prayed to God, the God of heaven. And I said to the king, it's like, it's pretty fast. He's that in step with the spirit and he's that in step with the Lord. He prays to the Lord and he says to the king, uh, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, that I may rebuild the wall. He goes from being sad about something that shouldn't have happened. He's saying, man, I, I wish that this hadn't happened. I wish that the wall had been torn down. I wish that they weren't in this situation. I wish that, as it says, um, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. And the people are in trouble and shame. That hurts his heart. But that causes him to pray, and it causes him to take action. I love what he does here as a good leader. He goes in, and it's what do you want? And he says, "You know what? I'm going to rebuild that wall." He doesn't say, "Could you send some workers?" I'm sa- he says, "I want to go and put my hands on that wall and, and get my eyes on the people, and I want to I want to rebuild this thing." That's that's the passion that he has as a leader, and the passion that he has to to do what God is calling him to do, and to benefit the people greatly in it. So. Um, we see he prays and he makes a plan. He acts. And not only does he act, but in the rest of the chapter, he comes up with this plan for others to act as well. So it's not just a matter of i got to figure out what I'm going to do as a good leader. He's char- he is levied with the charge to, to figure out what else do others need to do. I need to figure out my own action, but I need to figure out an action for other people to actually make this thing work. Like there's practical details that will need to go into play to do this. A lot of times Christians... Totally screw this up, we think there's this massive thing. <clears throat> if the Lord wants it done, he'll do it. Like, well, hold on, like what are they going to need to build the wall wood where are they Where could they get wood maybe oh, a forest who who who's in charge of the king's forest, yeah. So he he, he makes he prays, but he, he's active. He makes he says, okay, we're going to rebuild the wall. If the Lord wants it, it's going to happen. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, we need wood. Wood is found in forests. ASAP is responsible for the king's forest. Can you give me a letter to give to him so that he will give me some trees? And I'm going to need a place to stay. So I need enough to build my own place, and I'm going to need enough to rebuild the wall. You see this like plan and these details that he tends to, and he kind of does it on the fly, prayerfully. I I mean, he's a really good leader. I, I, this kind of floors me. Makes me feel like there's lots of room for improvement. Yes. <laughs> they've been in exile for, oh, what was it, last week? Does anyone remember from last week how long we said they've been in exile up until this time? 586 to 539, so it was about 50 years, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, I that's a good question. As I read this, I've always thought he has a picture in his head as what it looked like because he saw it. It's sort of like glory days for people where they knew what it used to be like, and so I've always read it like that. But that that's actually a good question. I'm like ninety percent sure that's the case, but there's there's a ten percent window there. Does anybody know for sure? No, all right, so suffice it to say I'm, I'm not the only misinformed one or ill-informed or uninformed. okay, just I don't want to be alone up here. No one else in here knows either. Um, <laughs> yeah, look it up, send an email. Um, uh, with that said, they act. they know what there is to do, and they act. so what are the chief actions for the Christian today like for us today what are what are the if you were to like I, I'm really wanting to summarize this. Like obviously, there's like a thousand answers you could give, but your purpose. What are we supposed to do? Yeah. Pray, listen, act. Absolutely. And so, how's it, what's that going to look like for us? Well, what are what are some key things that are going to be a part of our everyday life? If that's true. Aware of needs. Absolutely. What else? Have a heart of a servant? Absolutely. All Christians should have servant hearts. I've heard some people talk about it like that's a spiritual gift some people have who are Christians. We're all supposed to have servant hearts. That's a good point. What else? Yeah. Sensitive God spirit wherever he's leading. What is one thing that each of us as Christians, as people called by God to do his work, will struggle with every day? Yeah, sin, temptation, unbelief. Okay, Um, so what else would be a part of our everyday walk if we struggle with sin every day? Confession, repentance. And then uh, when we confess and repent, we don't just stay there. What else do we do? We move, we act, and we do that trusting God. So what I'm wanting us to see is like the chief actions that we do are, are repentance and trust that's going to play out in a lot of different ways for the Christian. Sometimes it's going to play out in giving the person goods or a meal or something who needs it. Sometimes it's going to be in leading out. Sometimes it's going to be responding to an opportunity within the body. There's a thousand different ways, more than that, uh, for the people of God to be the people of God. But in order to do that, the daily movement is repentance and trust. We're going to trust the Lord. We're going to, we're going to obey. Uh, the, the catechisms say the chief end of, of man is what? Yeah, to enjoy God by glorifying him forever or and, or Ben made up the word enjoyify, whatever works for you. Um, So repentance and trust. So what what I'm wanting us to see is, we're building this wall here is that we're not known by our isolation from others or by our actually being apart or away from them. What we're known by is our newness of life. You know, when someone's baptized, you're buried with him in beautiful baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. The reason we say that is that's what, that's what you're marked by at that point. Jesus has done something, and it makes an impact, and people are supposed to see it. That's why he says, don't put the light under the bush. You, you let it shine. And so we're all thinking about the kids' song right now. I hope you think about it throughout the week. I hope it encourages you. Um, but we're, we're not called to... To, to hide things, but we're actually called to be known um, by the newness of life that we have. We're made holy, so in a sense, we are set apart. But what I want to make sure we see in this study is that that does not mean seclusion from the culture. Rather than disassociation, we hope to affect others in a daily walk of repentance from our sin and trust in God and obedience. That's the, that's the long arm of evangelism is a healthy church that's doing that. The the long, the way we reach out and, and and show people the goodness of Jesus and communicate the gospel, a lot of, I mean, I grew up in a setting where I thought that, well, how do you reach people for Jesus? where well, you got to go and share the gospel in a particular way, in a particular setting, and that's how people will get to know, and if, you know, if no one tells them, then how will they know? The, all that is partially true. Um, it's true, but it doesn't reveal the truth completely, I guess, as we've said before, and so... Um, this this movement of of reaching out to people and being distinct a distinct people is largely seen by the way that we repent from our sin and that we follow God and trust Him in obedience. Like does that blow anybody's mind? Ba-ba-ba! Repent and follow Him in obedient trust. That, that's what we're called to. That's what we're called to do. And um, that will have an effect on people. And one thought that I had as I was looking through this is. Um, we want to affect others in, that, in our daily walk with that. And sometimes I, I worry that Christians can become way too uh, concerned about hiding their sin and like seeming like they never need to repent, seeming like they never need to confess anything. And I think there's something remarkably evangelistic about Christians who will confess their sins openly. That doesn't mean you have to air out all your junk with everybody, but... Um, If all all that non-believers see is people who have all their stuff together perfectly, um, they're not actually seeing something that's true because we're sinners, and that's our daily chief action is confess, repent, and move in obedient trust. Um, So Israel has good leadership. They have given good order to their work. They've begun the work, and in chapter 4, they meet opposition to the work. Look at 4, 1 through 6. This is usually how it happens when Christians embark upon what God calls them to do. You look at it, you give good order to it, you you start it, and then within a short amount of time, usually, we see opposition to it. Four verses one through six. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry, greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Good one, Tobiah. Hear, O our God for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. Love it. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work two important notes. First, uh, yet another reminder, we should not be surprised when we meet opposition to our work. The Bible says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. A lot of times, we find ourselves in a fiery trial, and we say, what's happening? Because we forget that it says, do not be surprised when it comes upon you. Opposition to the work that we're called to do as Christians will happen all the time. If you're at work and you're trying to share the gospel with someone and, you know, Tito from Two Cubicles Down comes up and just shoots the wheels off of it by telling some crude joke, you can know, well, yeah, opposition to the work's going to happen. You, you, you don't look at him and, and say, I almost had him saved and because of you, they're going to hell. That, that's, I was actually at a camp one time where some kids were talking and I watched the counselor go over to him and say, those kids in front of you might not know Jesus, and you were talking, and because you were talking, they might go to hell. (laughs) Be quiet. And turn around, I was like, oh, that was helpful. Yeah, they're going to trust Jesus now. Um, Because if they were talking, the entire possibility of them trusting Jesus would be gone. Um, So yeah, we don't move like that. We're not surprised at fiery trials, but we persevere through them because we trust Jesus. We entrust ourselves to him. And we know that when opposition comes up, We're not to be surprised, and we're not to be completely unseated by it. If they would have stopped, they wouldn't have built the wall. If they would have heard what they were saying, oh, the fox will topple that over. Tobias, right, let's stop. They wouldn't have done what God called them to do. They would have been, been, and what would have happened? The wall wouldn't be there. They would have been open to all outside influence. And their call to be a distinct people would not have remained. It would have been toppled over. So the second thing is it's important that the people have a mind to work. How did they come about that? They have a mind. It says, I love it. So we built the wall. It's such a great line. So we built the wall. All this stuff, folks. I'm not so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people who had a mind to work. What caused them to have a mind to work? Good leadership? What else? They knew it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I think what we're seeing here is like-mindedness. It was like-minded because it was unified in the Word of God. What was it that Ezra and Nehemiah spoke? God's Word. They heard God's Word. They listened to it. So if they had a mind to work, it was because they were like-minded according to the gospel. So for us today, if we're listening to the Word together, we're engaging it together, it being living, active, doing what it does, the Spirit still moving the way He did years and years ago, as Hebrews 3 says, it will have an effect on us that causes us to be like-minded. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says... Uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Um, and it goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We use our minds to, to engage and be engaged by the word. And transformation happens there. And what that verse is saying is that you will be conformed to the world if you're not transformed by the renewal of your mind. If you couple that with Ephesians 4, Brad preached an awesome sermon on this a couple of years back where we see that unity is something we have as a gift. We don't, we, don't, we don't sing kumbaya and hold hands and cry, and then we're more unified. But in fact, he gives it to us as a gift in Jesus. And when we have that, we have unity of thought. And so here, they all had a mind to work because that mind was a mind that was united under, the, under Yahweh, under the Lord, and they were moving forward and doing the work that they were called to do. Then we look at what a good leader does in verses 7 through 14, and we'll close with that. 7 through 14 says, but when Samlah, and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, "'The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. "'There's too much rubble. "'By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. "'And our enemies said they will know or see "'till we come among them and, and kill them and stop the work. "'At that time, the Jews who lived near them "'came from all directions and said to us ten times, "'You must return to us. "'So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I stationed the people by their clans "'with their swords, their spears, and their bows.'" And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is like a brave heart moment. It's like, fight for your mothers and your daughters and your sons. And it's awesome. And so he, he lifts their spirits by sharing with them what, what God tells them to do. So good leadership faces opposition. That's, that's another sign of good leadership. Good leadership... Um, uh, faces opposition and notice that he both prays to invoke God's aid and he acts uh, too often we'll, we'll do one without the other we'll, we'll pray and pray and pray and never do a thing or we'll just launch off into doing what we feel is best and we've never gone to the Lord for insight, wisdom, discernment warning, anything It's good to note that trusting God results in actions. That's something that we're seeing throughout Nehemiah. If we trust God, we'll we'll do things uh, for His glory. We'll act for the kingdom. We will actually help people. We will actually pour ourselves out uh, for others. Um, God's sovereignty is never to be used as an excuse for our laziness or our lack of attention. If if you see something that needs to be done, if you're burdened about something, if you see someone who you, you know that they don't know Jesus. If you see someone who's poor and needs something, someone who needs clothing, someone who you see that and you're burdened by it, and you just say, well, God's sovereign. You got to be real careful about using God's sovereignty as an excuse for laziness or a, just a, a lack of obedience to follow through and be diligent and an opportunity that you might have to do kingdom good and to put the glory of God on display. So this book's all about action. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the rest of the book and uh, we're going to look at uh, continue to look at the good leadership the Nehemiah, and we're going to look at how um, perceiving the needs of others and pouring yourself out for them um, is is so very Jesus-y. Uh, it, it's so Christ-like, and uh, it, it puts his glory on display to perceive people's needs and to pour yourself out for them. That's, that's what we'll engage in large part next week. So let's pray. Lord, we love you very much, and I thank you uh, for for the book of Nehemiah and the ability to look at it tonight. I'm thankful for the spirit that gives us understanding. Lord, I'm I'm thankful that all of us have to approach this humbly, knowing that without you, we can't even understand this, much less do it. Uh, I'm thankful for a spirit that comforts us in our weaknesses, that uh, gives us wisdom when we ask for it uh, abundantly. Uh, In great measure, as it says in James. Uh, And I am humbled by the work that you've been calling your people to for generations. And to be here in our generation and see it's still going on. And you are getting your glory. And your kingdom is moving forward. And you are reigning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we're called your people. That's humbling. And that's sweet. And that's encouraging. We love you. We pray that you would be with us tonight as we go our ways and help us to glorify you throughout the rest of the week. Pray these things in Jesus' name.